The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has allowed a class action lawsuit against the Air Force to move forward. Plaintiffs are a group of current, former, and prospective civilian employees who are deaf or hearing impaired. They claim the Air Force did not provide basic accommodations required by law. For more about the case, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Sean Batulier, senior staff attorney at Disability Rights Advocates, and attorney Wendy Musell. Sarah Weimer, who uh, was an attorney at the Nellis Air Force Base, reached out to us regarding, you know, some of the pervasive problems she'd been having getting accommodations. You know, she had, it had taken months and months just to get something as basic as a video phone so she could make phone calls to other people in the Air Force as as part of her job, you know, something that she needs to do every day as part of her job. And the Air Force couldn't even do something as simple as getting that to work. And, you know, she also, she had on multiple occasions requested um, ASL interpretation or CART interpretation, which is essentially like transcription of conversations that are happening and had repeatedly been refused, had been told that there was no money for that, despite, you know, the Air Force having billions and billions of dollars at its disposal. And she had also realized in the course of having these issues that she wasn't alone, that there were people all over the Air Force at all different bases who were having the same problems and that this was really a systemic issue all across the Air Force, no matter what base you were at, no matter who your supervisor was, that there were just these these real issues with getting basic accommodations and accommodations that other employers of all sizes provide every day to deaf employees. And Wendy, how did you get involved in this? Sean reached out to me um, from Disability Rights Advocates and asked if my firm would be interested in assisting representing the federal workers in the case. The federal system is quite Byzantine. There are very short deadlines. Um, For example, if an individual has been subjected to discrimination in the workplace, they have 45 days, if you can believe it, to raise those complaints. And the whole process, in my opinion, is not user-friendly for those employees who have the bravery to come forward and raise these issues and ask that the government live up to what they're supposed to be, which is be a model employer. There are regulations that state the federal government is supposed to not only comply with the law, but be a model employer. And this clearly was not happening. So we were thrilled to join disability rights advocates. They're a leader um, in making sure that uh, systemic issues regarding disability rights are enforced. And we have a lot of experience in representing federal workers for discrimination cases. So we thought joining forces to ensure that systemic change at the Air Force becomes a reality. And one of the things with the Air Force, which I I think is particularly egregious, is a lot of employees who are civilians used to be enlisted um, with the Air Force and may have lost some of their hearing because of the work that they did serving our country. So when those same people come over to be civilian workers and continue to serve our country and then are not provided with very basic accommodations and frankly, the dignity that they deserve just as an employee, but also as somebody who's doing such important work, I think that deserves attention and it deserves change. 
So talk to me a little bit about the process that you went through. The EEOC appeals court just affirmed the case and has issued a decision in your favor. What can you tell me about what the next step is and what the EEOC route uh, signifies in the way that you took it? What happens when an employee makes a, a complaint is they have to go through a whole internal process, which can take a long time before you even have the opportunity to go to the EEOC for adjudication. And our clients, the class agents, did that. It took them, even before we got to the EEOC, sometimes years, in which they weren't even, in some cases, provided accommodations for that process. So you can imagine if you're deaf and you want to make an EEO complaint and the Air Force doesn't even have accommodations so that you can make an EEO complaint, and yet it's required as a matter of law. So after they went through the internal processes, we then filed with the EEOC. The EEOC was pending there for a few years, first at the San Francisco office and then at the Los Angeles office. We had numerous rounds of briefing and we provided mountains of evidence that show that there's systemic problems with the Air Force providing these basic accommodations. We were thrilled with the decision by the administrative judge who very correctly saw that there are systemic problems that need to be addressed as it relates to civilians, applicants, employees, and former employees, and that this case can proceed on a class basis with the class covering the entire United States and some bases that would be abroad, as well as the number of class members is estimated either over 700 and could be as much as nearly 2,600 members currently. So the Air Force did appeal that decision. The Office of Federal Operations, which is the appellate court of the EEOC, made this recent decision, which we're thrilled, affirming the class certification and saying that the case can continue on a class basis, and that the case should go back to the Los Angeles office of the EEOC and proceed on a class basis. Additionally, there had been a persistent problem with the Air Force not complying with the court's rules. This was noted in the decision that the Air Force simply apparently considered itself above the law, not only with providing reasonable accommodations under the Rehabilitation Act, which is the law that is very similar to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but applies to federal employees. But they also felt they were above the law as it relates to complying with discovery obligations and violated order after order after order. And so the Office of Federal Operations, the OFO, had also required that they respond to one of the last orders that had been violated to provide additional documents that they had failed to provide. So our hope is this case can continue as expeditiously as possible (laughs) so that we can make the change that these employees so deeply deserve. Yeah, Sean, that provides us a perfect segue into the question I was going to ask you, which is what are you all hoping to achieve with this? You know, it's a lawsuit. So obviously, you know, there might be some sort of maybe compensation involved or something. But I think that the broader goal here is for the change that Wendy just mentioned. What uh, from the disability rights advocates point of view are you all hoping for? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right that the broader goal is that kind of change. That's really what our clients are in it for. They certainly have suffered some financial consequences. They've had their careers derailed. A couple of them have had to leave the Air Force because they just couldn't take going into work every day and not getting the sort of basic things that they needed to do their jobs. But all of them are really motivated to change things for other people and make sure that this doesn't happen again, you know? So in terms of what that looks like concretely, one thing we're pushing for is for the Air Force to implement centralized funding for accommodations so that it's not a question of, you know, does your little individual unit have the money right now to, let's say, hire an interpreter, but really looking at does the Air Force as a whole have the money? And that the answer to that is always pretty much going to be yes, right? And that's actually, that is how it's supposed to work. That is how the law is written, that you look to the organization as a whole when determining whether whether they can afford a particular thing. So that's one piece, the funding piece, because a lot of accommodations were just being denied because of funding or being delayed because of all the various bureaucratic levels that things had to go through. There are other things like, so providing technology, there are consistent problems that the Air Force knows about with getting things like video phones or captioned telephones so that an employee going into the job can actually just make a simple phone call. So I think resolving those issues, making sure that the Air Force has a streamlined process for getting basic technology to work. There are issues for employees who have security clearances. The Air Force doesn't have interpreters who have security clearances. Mm. So you have people who because of their jobs, have to handle sensitive materials. And they just have no way of doing that. No way of doing that portion of their job because they can't get these accommodations. There are persistent problems with training materials. So like the Air Force will have required trainings where it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, watch this video and answer these questions or whatever. Those videos are not captioned, pretty consistently not captioned. So deaf employees can't engage in in trainings. So really, I mean, that's a lot of detailed stuff. What we're really looking for is systemic change to ensure that deaf employees can do their jobs just like any other employee. And none of this, none of this, I, I you know, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. None of this is very revolutionary. This is stuff that other employers do all the time. There's no reason the Air Force can't. Yeah, on that, I mean, we're not, you know, insinuating that obviously the Air Force doesn't want to be able to tap into the talent pool of folks who just are, are disabled. So is it just that, you know, from hearing the Air Force saying it was a budgetary concern was really their only concern? And it just what held them back, I guess, from taking these, as you mentioned, seem to be pretty simple steps. You know, we don't know. We don't know. I can't speak for the Air Force and what the Air Force's motivations are and what has been holding them back. You know, one thing we learned in the course of this case from their former head disability program manager, someone who served in that capacity for eight years, is that she recognized these systemic issues and she tried over and over and over and over again to make change and just hit a wall. So there seems to be just some bureaucratic inertia, some sense of, you know, this is just the way that we do things and we're not going to change. Probably some degree of, you know, this is not a priority. And we're really hoping and that this decision and this case will finally shake that 
loose and get the Air Force to do what it should have been doing all along. Wendy, from a, and you'll get the last word here, from the law perspective, how is the law not been applicable? A federal agency as big as the Air Force has been able to skate by with not conforming to it. Well, they've been subject to these requirements of the law and from our perspective have been violating it for years um, while having absolute notice of the problems that are persistent across their the entire Air Force for civilian workers. And it's, you know, for federal em- employers, they are subject to the same laws. Nobody is above the law. We don't have a monarchy which exempts itself, generally speaking. And so the federal government is subject to the same laws and they have to abide by them just like everyone else. And we're simply saying, do the right thing, follow the law, and in fact, be the model that you're supposed to be. And we're hopeful that for other agencies, which have decided, despite the fact that they've had decades and decades to come into compliance, simply to violate the law and to ignore the rights of disabled employees and specifically deaf or hard of hearing employees, that they take notice that there are employees who are brave enough to come forward to hold them to account. And there are law firms um, and disability rights organizations that will hold their feet to the fire. Wendy Musell is a plaintiff's attorney in Oakland, California. Sean Batulier is a senior staff attorney for disability rights advocates. Federal News Network has asked the Air Force for comment on the case. Haven't gotten a response yet. You can find this interview fully transcribed at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in 
abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think 
you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it You know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.